great to be back for another episode of Coaches on the Beach, and today we are looking to dive into the past of the NCAA Beach Volleyball. Um, we're all about growing the game, but there's no better way to look at the growth of the game than look at where we came from before in the history, um, highlighting programs, highlighting people that have done great things in the game, and uh, a familiar voice to everyone. We've brought back Wayne Hawley, um, has experience as an NCAA head and assistant beach coach, also some indoor coaching experience. Uh, he's coached for USA Junior National Teams, uh, and now he runs for, uh, the Beach Prospects out of Florida to help prospective student-athletes uh, get recruited, educate them, and he also has a site, Beach Prospects Analytics, that's on his Beach Prospects site that he does a lot of research of the current NCAA season, past seasons. He has a lot of information for us, so super happy to have Wayne back for this one. Colin, uh, let you kind of get us going here a little bit about what what type of history have you found in the beach game? Yeah, uh, self-proclaimed uh, volley nerd here. Um, you know, started kind of paying attention, I would say, seriously in 2016 or 2017, uh, and then have did my deep dives and lived out in California and got to know some folks that filled me in on some of the past, um, some familiar names for Wayne Hawley, but actually sat with him at the Hermosa Beach Pier and uh, Shane Spellman and Alex Jones and uh, Adam Schultz were all there. And that's uh, a, a group of names that might not mean a lot to many people, but uh, also mean a lot to the volleyball community. Um, you know, Wayne had the opportunity to coach uh, Jonesy, Alex Jones, yeah. and uh, Kyle Stevenson, right? Uh, what, what is this? Uh, some tournament in Thailand, the Philippines? Where were you guys at? Oh, where were we? Uh, we were in Poland. Poland. And you took down the Poles, right? You beat uh, Cantor Losiak or something like that when they were Brio Losiak. Oh boy, I'd love to say yes to that. I, I honestly, Colin, I, jeez, I don't, I don't remember now. I, I remember we, uh, we had a great time. Uh, awesome guys, uh, super great players. I remember we were incredibly undersized on the international scene, and uh, we ran about every conceivable defense that anyone who's ever thought about volleyball <laughs> has thought of, just to try to stop the opposition. <laughs> without really a true blocker and uh, I know we got I know we got some wins over there that was pretty cool yeah yeah they were uh they were a fun pair they're you know people credit Oman and Helvig from Sweden a lot for revolutionizing beach volleyball with their jump setting and and the Polish team was one of the early Polish and uh, Australian teams were early like speed and pin set balls um, but I really think it started with Alex Jones and Kyle Stevenson on their back ones on the beach um, Kyle was uh, outside at Northridge and then uh, Jonesy was a setter at Northridge for a little bit as well as Hawaii um, two fun guys but they kind of filled me in on all the things that I had missed uh, before I got into beach volleyball and one of the first things that I remember is talking to, to Wayne about your studies right and so I think early on there have been studies about um, I remember the, the big one I remember was during COVID you presented about uh, secondary passes, right? So passing the, after an ace, what happens kind of on the next ball um, and how that trends across beach volleyball. And that, that was from you just watching a ton of video, right? And self, self-recording. Yeah, that was uh that was a fun COVID project that, um, um, 
yeah, it took a long time. Yeah, we looked at, you're exactly right. We looked at uh, what would be is people smarter than me would call it negative performance dependence. So it was looked like, in other words, it's how do we perform after um, the preceding play was a failure. So if I passed the ball uh, out of system or I got aced, what was the likelihood on the next ball that I received that it would be out of system, uh, um, right? And to see whether a prior failure kind of suggested a more a greater likelihood that the next ball would also be a failure. Yeah, and so this kind of sparked so that sparked the research that you yeah, do, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you know, um, you, you know, there's a lot of things that we coach, right? And um, you know, you know, the, the things that we say, and I. I I'm very interested to find out whether the the things that we say are correct. Um, and so, you know, often my test of truth is to look at the data to see uh, there are other tests of truth, of course. Um, but yeah, I think in would be volleyball, right? If, we, if you ace somebody, right, what does the coach always say? Right? Make sure we serve that person again, right? Well, I want to know if that was just something that we made up, right? Or whether it's actually statistically correct that that person is, you know, more likely to perform you know, poorly again uh, after the prior failure, right? Or hey, that person served is this past that prior ball, you know, out of system, and is it more likely that they're going to do that again? And so, um, a lot of people um, are good with the eye test. I don't trust the eye test. I just wanted to look at the data, and I had nothing else to do, so I spent a few months doing that. <laughs> yeah, and so what's the latest eye test in your kind of new focus? Maybe you're still coaching, right? You're still going to coach uh, juniors beach volleyball. Uh, Oh, I don't sure. think you'll ever never not be a coach, but uh, you also help with recruiting, right? And so you've done yeah. quite a few research on the makeup of NCAA beach volleyball. Um, and maybe what's the thing that we're saying about college beach that you are trying to figure out, mm, are we saying it and it has validity or are we, uh, we just making it up nowadays? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's a, yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, what I've done is I, I have some of those right in the works, um, but they're, they're highly time consuming, but also highly rewarding. And, you know, what I've started to focus on now, uh, Colin, is <clears throat> right, is what we think we know about beach volleyball programs. Right. If somebody said to you, name a beach volleyball program, right, um, pick any school the listener would think that they know certain things about that school, right? And so I have set out to look at um, the history of each program um, to see whether the things that we think we know about them uh, are in fact accurate, right? So we look at um, many of the things we track is, of course, historical performance. Um, and we look at it from the origination of the program, right? So um, how often do they win? Um, how often do they win in their own division? So if it's a division two school, what is their record against division two, if it's division one school, so forth. Um, how often do they win against the top 20? How often do they play the top 20? How often do they play teams with X record? And so we look at, at their practices and their performance. How do they perform and how do they schedule over time? And we look for trends. Um, we will indicate in the data whether there was a change of coach and then see, hey, as a new coach comes in, do they have different thinking? Does that, does that change any of the, how the team is performing or scheduling? Um, we look at who they recruit. Um, 
We know the height of every single player that's ever played uh, in NCAA beach volleyball since 2016. That's why I say NCAA. So we just limited it to from 2016 to 23. We know the average height. We know it by team. Um, you know, are blockers getting bigger or are they not getting bigger? Are they getting bigger on some teams or conferences? So we look at a lot of that because we might think that it's easy to say players are getting faster and stronger, right? Like people love to say that. Well, I don't know if that's true or not. I know you said it, but I'm not sure if it has actually any, you know, meaning. So uh, we look at that stuff. Um, we, we look at the states from which players are recruited, right? Where are the regions in the country uh, from which the most players are getting recruited? Um, how does that change over time? How does it change by program or conference? So we look at a lot of that stuff, um, you know, mainly because we love just kind of knowing more about beach volleyball. Um, also, because when we talk about it, I think it's just important if we're going to talk about it publicly to be accurate. And lastly, it's a function of being a good advisor, right? We, we have a fortunate position of being able to help um, give advice to families about how they make their choices and so forth. And as an incident of that, we think it's important to give uh, accurate advice. So um, long answer to an awesome question. <laughs> What's uh? well, here would be the short answer to the short question. What's been the most interesting finding? What's like the pattern that you're like, wow, did not see that one coming. Wow, boy, that's such a good question. Uh, boy, what is the pattern that I wouldn't have wouldn't have seen coming. Um, I think a pattern that uh, did surprise me was the, there's, there's a lot of talk about growth, right? Like um, sports sponsorship, which is a way of saying how many programs are there in beach, right? Um, and how many players are coming in. Um, one thing that when you look at the numbers, I think that, you know, it's a bit of a misnomer. We always talk about in beach volleyball, it's the fact, right? If anyone says anything, they say it's the fastest growing sport, X, Y, Z, right? And so if a new program adds, uh, you know, a, a, a sports information director somewhere in the world is going to find that sentence and put it in their, in their article. And like, is that actually right? Right. And so we, you know, we did look at that and it's not growing particularly fast um at all uh, particularly in division one it is in division two and three so that might be some of the things that um we're like oh wow this was worth doing right um you know we see where is it growing and where is it not growing and and you know if we had a different role we might say how can we stimulate growth where it's not present right but we don't really get into that way yeah to that point right nai is probably the biggest boom in maybe collegiate beach volleyball um as well as junior it is volleyball. Yeah. Yeah. See, you have a good eye test. I don't. So I researched it and you just know that's, that's, that's why you're you. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's right. Um, and, um, and then division three, right. And then division two and then division one. So that's top to bottom, uh, most growth to least growth or fastest growth. And slowest. Yeah. The D three one surprises me a little bit just cause and this is here's where my eye test will fail, Wayne. Um, right, thinking of Division three programs, right? I, I can come up with a couple off the top of my head. Probably Barry in Georgia, uh, they might be NAI actually. Now that I think about it, uh, but them, um, Hendrix, yep, Mary Harden Baylor. Yeah, oh, Mary Harden Baylor. Yeah, there we go. A good Texas program. Nice. Um, but I can't think of too many in in I guess the traditional places, right? A D three program in Florida doesn't particularly come to mind um as well as a d uh, there isn't one there is one who, who you got uh, no there isn't one 
Yeah. Oh, there's so, a, uh, so that's where the eye yeah, test comes Stevenson. Stevenson. Right? Stevenson in Maryland. Uh, Huntingdon, LaGrange. There we uh, go. Mary Harden Baylor, Hendricks, Berry, Bob Jones, uh, East Texas Baptist, and then Lynchburg. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. They're all right. They're all East Coast, which is not when you tend to think of the growth of beach volleyball. Um, once again, a pattern you probably wouldn't think of, but I think a majority of the first programs were actually on the East Coast. Um, OG 15 teams and off the top of my head, right? JU, UNF, Tulane, Mercer, uh, FAU, FSU, uh, UAB was one of the first teams, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you are right. There we go. Ste did Stetson have a team that first year? Is that... uh, I, I want to say yes, but I, I'm not positive. I have to, have to double check that. I think there was 13. It was either 12 or 13 at first year. Stetson okay. was one of them. Tulane, Florida Gulf Coast, FAU, Long Beach State, Mercer, FSU, UAB, UNF. College of Charleston, Jacksonville, hey. Hawaii, USC, LMU, and Pepperdine. There you go. Yeah, and off the off that list, I think uh, I think there's one one coach that's still at that program. I think it's uh, I think Jason Kepner still gets, or no, he he left. That's right. Damian took over for him this year. So now out of the out of the OG fifteen, they've all found their way <laughs> off the sand in uh, in eleven years or less. <laughs> uh, which is is always fascinating to me just the how the changeover worked especially early on um from that first team to to now right the there's been a lot of change and a lot of growth which is usually a good sign now for me being the newest beach member out of the three of us um i doing the research on it and then maybe some of our listeners aren't as into beach volleyball or just getting into it you guys keep referencing uh 2016 as kind of the start of ncaa volleyball but there was some stuff before then can can you guys kind of touch on that and what what did that look like and how did this kind of trickulate into the ncaa yeah uh well ncaa right so it got announced as what an emerging sport in 2011 2012 um, which is essentially where the ncaa says all right this might be a thing we might need to we might need to add this to a championship and uh and so in 2012 the abca the american volleyball coaches association uh decided hey we're going to help this thing out we're going to put on a beach volleyball championship and i think that first year it was eight teams, I think, went, but then there was a pairs event kind of attached to it. Um, and so that first year, uh, Nino Matis from Pepperdine brought home, brought home the ship, took down Long Beach um, to, to win the first ever ABCA championship. And that happened for a couple more years till 20, 2016 right we just talked about was the first year that the nc2a was like okay we're gonna make this a very legitimate overall competition they set up rules they set up a selection process there's a committee involved that i think doesn't include very many coaches right there's administrators on there uh, from each conference that is involved and uh and as everybody's super surprised um, southern cal took on that first ever championship um, they had a pretty good ones pair that year kelly clays and sarah hughes who beat the ever-loving daylights out of pretty much everybody and actually went on to 
almost win an AVP that summer. They played April Ross and Kerry Walsh Jennings in the San Francisco final. I think lost like 15-12 in the third set. So they were pretty much unstoppable. Um, and when, when did you start coaching Beach at Tulane? Uh, let's see, that would have been 20, the first year was what, 2012, 2013, uh, first academic year. So, uh, the second year of beach, of, uh, college beach volleyball. So 20, either 2013 or 2014. Yeah. There you go. And did you yeah. guys, did you guys make goal shores? Did you, did you have a pair go there or anything like that in those early yeah, years? Yeah, we, uh, yeah, we, we, that, uh, we did not get. Uh, selected to go to the team championship that the ABCA was then running, but we did go to the uh, the pairs championship. Um, I believe every year prior to um, the NCA taking over uh, the championship sport in 2016, we got to go. There used to be a great you made mention of it. There used to be a really great fun event called a pairs championship for those who don't know, and that was uh, also held in Gulf Shores alongside the team championship, and that was. Um, uh, the AVCA would select, uh, following nomination, some of the standout pairs from each team. Uh, typically, they were number one pairs, and all of those pairs would go, and you could compete for a championship. And it was great because it was very inclusive. It got a lot of teams' notoriety and an opportunity for postseason play, um, you know, where the team maybe wasn't deep enough to go, but they could get, uh, uh, you know, a pair there. It was very fun. So we got to do that uh, quite a few times. Very, very fun. That, uh, that pairs event, right, was like Wayne talked about already. It went on until 2016 when the NCAA took over. They kind of got rid of the pairs thing. Um, and then USA Volleyball actually picked up the pairs event. It wasn't quite the same because, because it was being run by USA Volleyball, you couldn't have any international players in it. Um, and if anybody watches a bit of College Beach, you'll notice there's a fair amount of international presence. Um, so I think even in those early ABCA days, right, there's a, a Serbian girl and maybe a Czech girl from like Louisiana Monroe, um, pre-Michael, pre-Michael Hobson, <laughs> uh, who were tearing up the world, right? They were great. They weren't qual they weren't able to qualify for the USA pairs tournament. So that took a took its place, but also had kind of a different um, feel to it and look to it. Um, but then, I mean, even before that, there was some. I think AVP hosted some pairs tournaments. Um, I think that had some fun ones. Sarah Pavin, uh, if I'm not mistaken, won one of those when she was playing at Nebraska uh, before she went off and played pro in Brazil and and obviously was a world champion not too long ago. Um, she she played a little beach in college, so uh, it's it's undergone quite a bit of growth. The the AVCA pair, team championship, AVCA pairs championship turning into NCAA beach, um, expanding the field was a move that happened um, last year. We went up to 16 teams, which included some conferences. Is it seven conferences last year, Michael? There, there were nine conferences last year, actually. Or, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. Uh, the first year of the 16 team thing, we went to we had seven or eight, I think. Yeah. Um, which was part of the expansion and so the the automatic qualifiers started in 2018 um and then that's when conferences started to kind of grow and teams started to try to find their way into conferences uh so i, I think right before COVID 2019 there were, there were seven conferences um and then 
th- this past year, a couple more conferences have been added since, and now there's nine. And I believe that was one of the reasons why they added more teams to the field in the championship, so they could get all nine conferences and automatic qualifier to get one of their teams into the championship. Obviously, uh, there's a play date now before the actual championship starts where the the 17th, 18th seeded team kind of play each other to see who's going to play against the number one seed um, and then go into that that weekend play. Um, But as of right now, like conferences, I know, Wayne, you do a lot of research on different conferences, different teams. What what have you kind of seen from the past and coming into the future? What, what are some trends that you're seeing? Well, yeah, I mean, it's been kind of fun to watch. And you outlined some of it. I mean, one of the obvious trends, right, is we have a lot more conference play, right? It used to be that there was, uh, you know, two or three conferences, and then it grew to seven. And um, and as you said, not, you know, we're at an all-time high in 23 with nine conferences. Never had that many before. And uh, interestingly, in 2023, we also had in the division, and we're just talking about Division One right now, um, 60, but it was only two teams, right, that weren't affiliated with the conference in 23, right? Uh, Texas, which had, you know, just announced last fall that it was going to move forward with the team, and then Nebraska. So, so 63 of 65 teams, right, highest percentage ever was affiliated with a conference, and, and that brought along a, a lot of great things for volleyball and a lot of great things for players. You know, what is you might listen and say, well, you know, what, what, why join a conference, right? Well, it, it, it means that you have a shot at, you know, winning an automatic qualifier to the tournament. You know, listeners know from many other sports, right? If you, if you win your conference tournament, you get an automatic qualification bid to the postseason. So that's awesome for a lot of programs. Um, but, but conference tournaments are, you know, a, a, a super fun. They're incredibly competitive. Um, so, you know, conferences bring conference awards, which is a great opportunity to celebrate player accomplishments and also to promote the sport, right? So you can do press releases and more people reading them on social media about, uh, you know, about awards and conferences. And so you're building an audience for the sport. So there's a lot of great things that conferences uh, bring to beach volleyball. And, and I think that the growth of conferences in the sport. Um, and the growth in the number of teams that are now affiliated with the conference has been a positive for the sport, um, both from a marketing standpoint and, uh, of programs and of players. Um, you know, we, nil seems to be right. Name, image, and likeness opportunity seems to be a hot topic now. And um, so I'm sure that players who win conference awards and thereby make efforts to turn that into nil opportunities are probably very grateful for conferences and the opportunity to uh, you know market their accomplishments. So I, I really love the fun of the fun of seeing the conferences grow. It's been um, it's been a great addition to the sport in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's been great um, from a purely fun watching competition perspective. Last year, getting to watch. I think on the first day of conference tournaments, the number one, two, three, and four ranked teams in the country um, all lost on their first day of competition. So we had Southern Cal and UCLA out at the Pac-12 tournament. One, I think USC lost to Cal and UCLA lost to Stanford uh, over on the CCSA tournament. Uh, TCU lost to, I think it was Grand Canyon and FSU lost to LSU, or maybe I flipped those. Um, But it created this quite, a big amount of excitement and as the sport continues to even out 
um, and you see in basketball from time to time, right, those smaller conferences maybe have a team that wasn't projected to win, um, take home a conference tournament and receive an opportunity to to gain that notoriety that you're talking about, Wayne, which ultimately gains exposure, um, which is all, you know, which helps the university grow. Who can't, I went to the University of South Carolina and watched um, our men's basketball team play in a final four the same year our women's basketball team won the national championship. And as much as people want to say, you know, Hey, there's no student comes before athlete. Right. And there's, there's all this speculation on stuff. Uh, that following year, the university of South Carolina had the biggest group of applications they'd ever received in the school's history and followed it up with the biggest freshman class they'd ever had in the school's history, which equals more money for the university and equals bigger, you know, the notoriety goes up via sport. Uh, and actually the quality of student rises as well. I know that the joke was going that um, when I went to South Carolina, they had a bad football year. Thank goodness. Because I got, uh, I got quite a nice academic merit award because I was in the top, whatever percentage of my, my freshman class and those same grades wouldn't have gotten me a quarter of the money that I got three years later after they had gone to a final four and a national championship in women's basketball and men's basketball. And so, you know, sports are a good thing. I think you're going to find uh, at a more micro level, right? Basketball is big. At a more micro level, you might see the same thing in volleyball, right? Now the, the quality of student that wants to go is a little bit higher, or maybe even just the quality of student athlete that wants to attend notices a school via beach volleyball and uh and now decides oh you know what i'm gonna look at louisiana monroe because they won the sun belt last year and and now i, I know that they exist you know yeah colin i mean it, it, it kind of takes us to you know how can conference affiliation be uh leveraged by a coach in his or her marketing of a program and in recruiting right so um you know lesser known programs or newer programs um, you know, for example, that are in the Southland Conference, right? You, you wouldn't, uh, you know, you've got a, a Boise State, right? You have a Houston Christian, a, a UNO, Nichols, San Jose State, you know, your school, Southeastern Louisiana, and, and Corpus, right, who happened to have won it last, last two years. You know, those are programs that, as a result of their conference affiliation and an automatic qualifier, have an opportunity to play in the postseason and make Gulf Shores, right? And that is something that, uh, you know, a coach at one of those programs might decide to, um, you know, use in conversations with recruits. If you're talking to a recruit who says, well, you know, part of my college experience is that I'd love to have an opportunity to play in the postseason, um, you know, it, it's a harder pitch to make without that conference affiliation for some of those schools and, and the same, you know, in the Ohio Valley Conference, right? Um, you have, you know, the UT, UT Martin, UT Chattanooga, you have some other schools which um, have a great opportunity to, to bring that up and say, hey, look, we have a chance to go to the NCAA tournament. You know, that's a great draw for us and they can make their pitch, you know. And so that's just another uh, thing that I think coaches probably are, are very happy that they're affiliated with the conference and an opportunity to, to win a fun conference tournament and play in Gulf Shores. Yeah. Uh, Wayne, any fun conference tournament memories? Oh boy. Uh, yeah, I can, 
you know, I mean, we had a lot of good battles. So when I was at Tulane, we, you know, we were always each year that we were in a conference, we were in the CCSA, which the listeners probably knows a phenomenal conference, uh, deep, successful, uh, you know, rivaled only by the Pac-12, you know, unquestionably, you know, one of the top two conferences. And, you know, uh, those years you were over there at South Carolina, Colin, I remember that. And yeah, we had some great battles against South Carolina, no doubt. Um, Winning one, right, and losing one. I think we won in overtime, three-two, probably overtime in a third set, and then the next year we lost it. But uh, yeah, always a lot of fun over there in um, in the CCSA, and uh, I felt like we uh, had very good teams at Tulane while I was there, and we always seemed to try to find a way to get more out of ourselves in the conference tournament, right? Um, and kind of play the role of, uh, you know, um, we're going to come out of nowhere and not let anyone see us coming and, and try to knock off somebody. And uh, sometimes it happened more often it didn't, but you know, it was, it was going for it. It's just a lot of fun, a lot of good memories from, from the CCSA conference battles, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. You get to play David once, right. And then, uh, and then Goliath doesn't, <laughs> doesn't quite sleep on you the same way on time. Sure. Um, you know, you well, talked well about said. playing each other. You talked about us playing each other, and uh, I remember 2017. It was kind of my first year at Carolina, and we we lost you guys that three-two absolute heartbreaker. Um, I couldn't tell you which pair lost. All all I remember is going back to the hotel. Uh, that tournament being played in Emerson, Georgia, at Rally Rally Volleyball, and uh, going back to the hotel, and they had this little outdoor courtyard area, kind of in the back, and whole team's meeting out there everybody's crying because the season's over right at the time only eight teams go to the national tournament we were ranked i think eighth going into that into that match eighth in the country um and definitely not one of the top three right florida state lsu um were definitely the the one two and then i was i can't remember who the third was right now but i didn't feel like we were in a good position to win the conference tournament or to win the to win the bid to NCAs, uh, unless we did something big at conference, and losing doesn't usually justify doing something quite big in the conference tournament. <laughs> and, uh, all those tears, and we're gonna drive him back from from Lake Point, Georgia, and and Ritz goes, yeah, we're gonna practice. Ritz, the head coach at South Carolina, goes, yeah, we're gonna practice this week, and everybody's going, what the Ritz? Why are we practicing, dude? We just season's over, so kind of an uninspired week followed by a uh, team meal uh, as finals are happening at all the same time. And, and there's a team meal that weekend at his house to watch the selection show. Maybe he's a little bit of a motivator to hey, try to make this. Um, and it was the second selection show and they're interviewing Anna Collier from Southern Cal. It was the no doubt one seed, right? They'd lost no matches throughout the whole year or something like that. And, Coach Collier, you know, congratulations. It'll be no surprise to you that you're the number one seed in the NCAA tournament. And, um, yeah, you'll be playing the eight-seeded South Carolina Gamecocks. And and everybody's sitting in the living room. And it, it takes probably like three seconds for it to really register. He just said our name. That's us. And the whole – everybody shouts. I couldn't tell you what was said after that. Um, you know, there's a great picture of Moritz uh, in the back back of the room. <laughs> just holding his head going, Oh my God, I can't believe that just happened. 
Um, and going out there and getting, and actually, you know, you know, playing Southern Cal and losing a tight one. So uh, the next year we beat you guys and felt a little more confident, equal level of excitement because uh, the next year they decided to, to do it in, um, in like a really weird order. So the first year it was like, we're announcing each matchup, but then the next year they announced it in, um, they announced it in one, two, eight, seven order. Like they kept flipping back and forth till you got to the middle part and we were the sixth seed. And I'd been saying all week to Maritz, I was like, Maritz, we're in, we're in, dude. Don't worry about it. Don't stress. Uh, and then you had to wait until the last matchup before they said our name. And the whole time I'm like, God, if I'm wrong, I am never going to live this down. I'll be stuck here forever. Um, so it was a very fun, very fun point. Yeah. I think also the big change here is, you know, talking about conferences, conference schedules. You know, we haven't had those in years past. Beach is kind of a free-for-all. Did you have theories on how you'd schedule your team at Tulane when? Yeah, sure. And you're quite right, right? We've never, we, uh, while we've had uh, growth in conferences, we haven't had a move toward mandatory conference scheduling, right? Like we do in other sports. So, yeah, good, good, good observation, Colin. And well, while I was around, we would, you know, vote on it each year on a coach's call and discuss, you know, hey, is this something we want to move to or not? And, and, and my, my view was, um, uh, generally against it insofar as, you know, I wanted as the head coach of the program to have a lot of discretion to schedule the way I wanted to schedule, given what our goals uh, were, right? And so anytime you go to mandatory anything, that's a vote in favor of giving up freedom. And I was a big fan of my own freedom and liberty because I thought I made good decisions. And so I didn't want to give up my decisional authority um, to a rule. And essentially, that's how I thought about it. I said, well, I think I'm confident. I think I can get to wherever I want to go. And if I vote against mandatory scheduling, I can do, um, I can do, um, I can make decisions that are, you know, will allow us to do what we want. Right. And, and what does that mean? Right. It means, it means you want to schedule differently depending on what your team's goals are. Right. You may be um, trying to secure a certain number of wins. Right. Um, and, or you may be trying to, um, um, give your team experience against higher level play and that's secondary to you what your record is uh, or you may have a young team and you're teaching them hey look we're capable of winning right you have to winning is a skill you have to understand when you're close to winning how to close that right how to not let yourself give that away right that's a mental skill and so it depends on what your goals were and um so i i like the freedom to schedule how i want it um because i um yeah, it was important as the head coach of the program to kind of get our goals done. So that, that was my approach. And um, to this day, I don't believe we have any mandatory scheduling, right, in conferences, although I think many of them are moving toward a, a model where they're, yeah, they're doing some by agreement maybe, um, you know, some weekends where it's just a, it's just uh, within the conference competition and stuff. You guys probably know better now what's going on than me in that regard. Yeah, most most conferences now have some sort of a, a mandatory weekend where everyone's going to get together. Um, it, it looks different for each conference still. Some of them do two weekends of play. Some of them do one weekend of play. 
Um, and some of them will last two days, some of them will last three days, depending on how many games need to be played. So that seeding for the conference tournament can be a little bit more justified uh, because every team will play head to head. I mean, with, with the, the game itself, only having 16 play dates that you're allowed to play, you're trying to get in quite a few matches in a day. Um, some of those single play dates, you're, you're getting in three games and then a weekend play, you're usually playing four days over two days. Um, and that that is a, a real take on the student athlete trying to fit in such a compressed schedule. Um, and then it's also a real big thing for conferences when it comes to seating because then like like you said the freedom for coaches to schedule how they want so that they can build programs they can uh, justify how their programs doing to administration whatever it may be um, giving that freedom to kind of schedule how you want is a big thing but then you're you're limited in your play dates now and now your conference is coming in saying hey we need to do a weekend so we can seed more accurately because you're not going to see everyone budget what because of budgets and travel um, because of different areas I mean like the Southland you got you got teams from up in Idaho you got teams on the west coast in California and then you got a group of them down there uh, in in the southern Louisiana uh, East Texas area you know um, so conferences it, it's getting a little bit tougher but I think we're on track for what we need to do. Um, Colin, do, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, there's a big, I think a lot of credit has to be given to those conferences that kind of paved the way of doing it in the first place. Um, you know, the ASUN was one of the first conferences to do a, a mandatory conference play. They would do two weekends uh, and based on division. So the North Division would play each other twice, two weekends back to back. And the South Division would play each other two weekends back to back. Uh, then, you know, there was the, obviously the conference mid-year event, which is becoming seeming like you just talked about the most popular option. I think three out of the five conferences on the East coast will be hosting a conference midweek tournament next year. Um, but I, I think a lot of, I think there should be a little bit of consideration for what the PAC 12 does. Um, PAC 12 South and PAC 12 North have been tournaments for the last I think four or five years um, and they've they've operated on that conference model time and time again now maybe there's a slight difference because you know the top of the conference always plays each other I'm not sure but the two mandatory weekends is not that hard to do as long as we all acknowledge hey we're doing this we gotta suck it up and get it done kind of deal playing the rest of your year around it which isn't unheard of for most sports I mean I think even golf which is a, a very individualized sport that relies a lot on closer travel budgets, has a mandatory conference schedule of some kind. Um, and so it's been interesting to watch. I think, Michael, you coming from, you know, you spent quite a bit of time on the indoor side. Mm -hmm. Scheduling, there's, you know, Wayne talked about scheduled based on his goals. Uh, what are kind of the changes for you as you've navigated okay beach hey total laissez-faire right open hand do whatever you want do you want to play the, the <laughs> best team in the country 14 days in a row or do you want to do you want to mix it up what's that been like for you yeah i mean that that has been one of the biggest switches to me is when scheduling happens how it happens and then the the process of it um 
I, I tend to go into each season with a really good idea of what I want out of that season. And I don't have teams in mind, but I have a, a good, usually it's a line because I'm, I'm a very numbers oriented guy of how I want that line to flow throughout the season and where, where we want to get to at the end. And what I found my first year was that scheduling will start to happen in like late March. And then there's, there's quite a bit of a break. And then usually around May, you start getting a ton of emails saying, hey, everyone's hosting. And then there's another break. Um, and then everyone gets their budgets in July. And then that's when you start to hear everything of, oh, here's the contract. We're committing to it, all that stuff. Um, and so that, that whole carousel has been very interesting to me um, just because it, it's, it's broken up into three different parts of, rush and get there and then sit and wait and then rush and get there and sit and wait um but that that's been kind of uh an interesting thing for me uh filling out eight weekends or being able to use your play date uh strategically to be able to have a, a midweek game where you're getting three games in instead of the traditional two per day on weekends um seeing what teams are going to what tournaments um i know when when you're looking at tournaments uh, you kind of usually get a good grasp of who's going to be at that tournament from whoever's hosting it, but you never officially know until either you ask the coach or you get the contract or you see the schedule of the tournament and then it's like, oh, they're there now. Okay, that that changes the whole scheme of things. So you kind of, I kind of schedule based off of whoever's hosting um, that's kind of where we're looking to take our line on this linear curve. Wayne, thoughts as a viewer, right? Somebody that, you know, you're not, you're not coaching it. You're not doing the scheduling anymore. Um, but you definitely try to make a lot of college matches, right? You try to see new teams and, and get an, an understanding of what's going on out there. Um, is there any particular feeling one way or the other of like when teams should play conferences, who should play who, how that whole thing should work from a from a what would make you happiest as a pure fan of the sport. <laughs> yeah, and you said it. I have zero authority and speaking only as a fan, right? So now, thank goodness, I don't have to try to schedule anything anymore. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, a, as a fan, right? And then, of course, because, you know, it's my job to be knowledgeable for the people I get to work with. Um, and I don't want to get locked into my perception from 2020, my last year of coaching in Division One, right? Of what those teams work as teams change and evolve and get better and um, things. So, so yeah, I, I try to get around and see a lot. And, and really, my goal is just to see as many teams as I can. Um, it and um, so I, I'm just trying to see as many as many of the teams that I possibly can, so I can have a you know a stay updated on how. How well they're playing, you know, how their what their style is, right? How big their players are, what do their starters look like compared to their non-starters and skill sets and speed and movement. And um, what's been super fun for me is that the uh, ABCA Small College Championship, which uh, hosts uh, Division Two and Three and NAI teams uh, up in Tavares, Florida, each year. Um, was an event that was always uh, I couldn't go because I was coaching, right? And it's because it's in the spring. And now I get to go to it, and I've been to it every year since I left uh, college coaching, and it's been awesome. It, it's super fun to watch. It is highly competitive, and it was incredibly educational for me um, because 
a lot of those, most vast majority of those programs I had never seen. We hadn't scheduled them, um, you know, save for a few. I think, you know, we would play Tampa from time to time. Um, but I had never seen them. So it was really educational for me to see what does volleyball look at Wayne State? I have no idea. What does volleyball look like at Palm Beach Atlantic? I don't know. What does Palm Beach, what, is, what does volleyball look like at, uh, at LaGrange or Hendricks or um, at, at Colorado Mesa? I didn't know. I'd never seen those teams ever. And so it's been fun to watch teams like that because um, it's, it's fun. Uh, the players are having a great time. They're having a memorable experience playing in the postseason. It's competitive. Uh, and it's a really cool event, and I have loved watching that, and I'm glad it's on my schedule. <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt really going to the AVCA Falls Fall Pairs Championship this past year. Um, I got to take our pair from, from Coastal Carolina, and um, that was kind of the first time we actually had, I say keep saying we, I don't really know how to describe the situation, but Southeastern Louisiana this year played at Coastal. Um, which was the unit I coached at Coastal and now at Southeastern and um, had gotten, had talked to the school about coming. I had never seen SLU play beach volleyball in my life uh, until that Paris tournament, actually. And then fast forward, you know, a few months and now I'm coaching that pair from SLU at Coastal Carolina. Um, but it was great because I actually, I do remember Megan Scuderi and Julie Hidalgo from, from SLU, uh, beat uh, South Carolina pair in the pool play to move their way to gold bracket. And uh, I remember watching that match. It was one of the last ones of the day and I was sitting around and, and I called uh, Steve Loswick over at, at our head coach at coastal. And I went, we made him, we may have made a mistake scheduling Southeastern. <laughs> like this pair is really good. <laughs> I'm kind of, we, we should get ready for that kind of team. And much to your point, Wayne, of like, I haven't seen, uh, I haven't gotten to see a lot of these teams. It's very fun. Anytime we can create an opportunity to experience new things. That's what, you know, I'm trying to do with my scheduling is we have a, we have a trip out to Pepperdine um, planned, which I'm super excited about. We're going to play at Northridge and at, at Pepperdine. Um, I got my start at Cal state Northridge. So I'm going to take the team that I now coach to where I first started coaching. And then my head coach from, Cal State Northridge is now the assistant at Pepperdine, uh, Noel Rook. And now we're going to go play that team uh, with that coach who actually um, I think is going to have a former player of mine on the Pepperdine team. Oh, cool. So Yeah, it's going to be a fun little reunion, but I love getting to connect the sport because it is so great. You know, we obviously us three interact on a regular basis, but there's so many great people running around that, it's fun to see and anytime you can connect and, and find a new way, which I think is only done via the open nature of scheduling, right? You know, in indoor, you've got your four weekends that you get to schedule and, and pick what you want to do. In beach, we have eight or nine, depending on how you want to operate it. And that's an opportunity to give our athletes a new perspective. Uh, it's a way to give ourselves a new perspective on this is how volleyball is played in this region of the country, or this is what this facility is like. This is what this sand is like. This is what it's like to play at elevation versus at sea level versus in hot, humid versus dry. Um, and I think that that's valuable because it, it teaches a lot of adapt adaptability, that word, and it kind of opens that whole thing up for them. So 
I like the open scheduling as well. I'm with Wayne. I'll probably vote against it forever, but nobody asked for my vote. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I want to kind of bring you guys back. Um, you guys have both been around some really, really great players, really, really great coaches. Who are some really notable NCAA players while they were in the NCAA or who are some notable coaches that you've seen in the past and how have you seen those trends come forth? Colin, you want to get us going? Yeah, first one that comes to mind, a uh, lady named Lane Carrico, a dominant, dominant player at Georgia State University under Beth Van Fleet, who is obviously an amazing coach. You talked about her a couple times. Wayne got, you know, Wayne, you worked with her for a year um, when you were helping out at GSU. And but Lane, I swear she used to stand in the middle of the court and serve receive and like push her partner over to the bottom, like to the back corner of the court and would just pass 75% of it. She was so stinking good. Um, she played kind of around the same time as like Jace Pardon from FSU, who's another, you know, they both went on to play AVP and um, Lane even played some, some international. I think Jace did too. Uh, they don't play much anymore, right? Pro Beach Volleyball is definitely a um, – it's not a super common thing for a player to finish college and then go play pro in the AVP. It's getting more and more common. Um, but those were some of, like, the best college players that don't play anymore. Um, and and Link Carrico is, like, my number one of most dominant college Vince Young at Texas and Lane Carrico at Georgia State are my two. <laughs> uh, that's cool. I mean, my probably some of my st standout players that I still appreciate to this day are not surprisingly players that, um, you know, I got to work with or that were on my teams. And it's probably just a function of I got to know them better, right? Um, and I, I think that I tend to be someone who's you – know, to be honest, less impressed with somebody who's just a really great volleyball player. I'm like, okay, all right. So that's a, a particular skill set that really, you know, outside of the game is of, you know, and I mean skills like is is honestly rather than pedestrian in my opinion. Like, you know, okay, so you're you're good at hitting a ball over net and passing it and setting it right. And when you leave the court, those skills are not of zero value. Right? I never speak to an employer who cares one whit about how hard you hit a ball, what your court vision looks like. Or how you pass is meaningless. Um, so, you know, the ones that stand out on me, like like Jackie Wagner was a player who played for me. She was a South Florida kid, and uh, you know, was on the team when I got to Tulane. She was the first scholarship beach athlete at Tulane in year one. I got there in year two, and she was just, you know, a, a multi-time female student athlete of the year at Tulane. Um, you know, graduated with, uh, I think, a 395 GPA at Tulane, was done with her degree early, was when there were conferences with an all-conference player, played on our ones, const you know, all all the time. Players like that, I, I am always in awe of because they happen to be really great, cool athletes. They can do the volleyball stuff really well, which I do appreciate, um, but were great students. She was... Um, had just a, a really winning kind of personality and she just had was a good people person and you say that's somebody who's going to go and 
you know, be secretary of state when, you know, at one point in her life, you'd be like, wow, this is an awesome person who, you know, I get this preview of something great she's going to go do in her life one day, right? Um, Kaylee McHugh, just, uh, you know, to me, one of the most legendary competitors I ever got to coach in my life, had an amazing volleyball mind, um, incredibly creative, um, small in stature, massive in heart, um, had just competitive, you know, to the point that you just don't see. I mean, the most competitive player I saw in a career. Um, you know, she's she's playing still, so that's really cool. She's coaching over in Texas, uh, so that's really great. And, you know, more modern, um, I am massive fans of, of uh, Bella and Angel Ferrari over at Georgia State because I adore watching people who get the most out of themselves right like I, I it's not to me like oh she's the best player in georgia or the best player in the country it's like given her size and everything else she's the best possible player she could possibly be with what she has and i think that's phenomenal like that's amazing right um uber competitive uh entertaining um they win with a style of play that is non-traditional, which just has, I have a warm spot in my heart for that. So, um, yeah, those are some standout, standout players for me. And quick shout out. I got to see this year, a lot of the players on the Tulane team this year are still players that I brought in in my recruiting class. It was like five of them there. I got to see them this year. Um, Ashton Mars, Samantha Melman, Kendall Peters, they all, all graduated. I that were in my last recruiting class before I left. So they were seniors and moved on to other things. So it was fun to see them too. A lot, lot of awesome, cool players out there in the sport. What about some legendary coaches that you either coached alongside of or beside yourself, obviously? Um, but I was like, wait, that, that you saw. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, for me, I'm trying to think. I, I've been lucky to be influenced by so many really phenomenal coaches some names no one would even recognize um some of them were in, in usa volleyball system um i continue to try to be as good as beth van fleet i think when i got to work with her i became convinced that she is the coach of the year every year um and i, I just think she does a phenomenal job of combining two things that i don't do well, like I think I'm strong in some areas and not in others, and she seems like she's strong in everything. I think she's awesome at the relationship building piece, the motivation piece, the the leadership piece, and yet is just as good at X's and O's, knowing exactly what's going on, teaching, figuring out who does she have in front of her and designing tactics around their skill sets to win. I mean, I just think that's brilliant. Um, what she's able to do and combine those two skills because I know it's something that I try hard to do and I can't get equally good in both of those areas. So when I see someone else do that, I, I aspire to that a lot. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's probably the one that stands out in my mind first uh, is her. Yeah. Beth, I mean, we've talked about her a couple of times. Um, there's always that, that question of like, who's doing the most with what they have, I think, which is what you brought up. Beth does a great job of. Um, I haven't seen quite a level of loyalty to a person that I have uh, that the players at UCLA have had towards Triple J. Um, if you talk to alumni of the program, you know, Zana, I had the opportunity to spend some time with Zana Muno and uh, Sarah Sponsel, um, who went on to play professionally after college, and they have 
uh, just a fierce loyalty to what she was able to do for them as people. And I think that that goes a long way in things that I admire. Um, to always remember how you feel. I think we talked about that on the last episode. And, and Jenny seems to do an amazing job of that. Uh, as well as I have a huge amount of respect for uh, Steve Gretowski down at FAU. Right, He will try and he will go all in on whatever he's trying to accomplish. Um, and I don't just mean that from like, he's relentless in the pursuit, right? But him and John Mayer, uh, two people that I think when they have a theory, right? And they see it and they they think about it and they take their time with it, right? They're not just going in haphazardly. They don't hear something on a podcast one time and go, all right, that's how I'm running my program for the rest of time, right? But they get that idea and they evaluate it and talk about it with their staff and their players and they realize, okay, this is something that we think we need to commit to. Whether John Mayer's thing, right, randomness training, true constraint-led ecological dynamics, right, not directing but setting up environments. Um, Steve over at FAU, right, Red Culture Code, uh, kind of talked to him about it, right, calls it Pixaring, but like the idea that everybody's opinion has validity. Um, I think the commitment to those ideas is very scary because if it doesn't work out, you're going to lose, right? If the, if John's randomness training doesn't automatically make his LMU team significantly better than um, – he, you know, maybe you get that feeling of failure, but they both kind of commit to those ideas. So I think those are things that I really love to see out of people. Yeah. And I, I think one more question for Wayne, um, me and Colin have kind of both answered this on our other episodes, but knowing the history of beach volleyball, where, where would you like to see the game grow to? Like what parts of the game are missing still that have opportunities in them that you don't think are being touched quite yet? What a phenomenal question. Um, I, I think we could see beach volleyball is unique and in some uh, from a lot of other sports, right? It's unique um, in in its flexibility, right? A lot of people are attracted to the sport and especially players for that, right? It's got this culture behind it, whether if you call it the beach culture or whatever it is. And without losing sight of that, I think that the sport is sorely in need of need of greater professionalism um and that i don't mean just people um but you know i, I mean um if you want to bring in uh better professionals you've got to make their salaries commensurate with um you know an expect an expectation toward performance right um i think that there's for example a monumental amount of turnover at the assistant coach position in beach volleyball programs, right? I mean, you could you could point to any number of programs and see that they have a new assistant coach every single year. Well, what's the relevance of that? The relevance of that is the, the reason often why there's turnover is because the pay um, doesn't allow the coach to have shelter and eat food. And most people want both of those things. So um, people are able to do it and then they have to leave because they can't afford to do it, right? So pay is driving turnover, which in turnover hugely impacts player experience in the sport, right? What is the player experience in the sport, right? It's, for many, it's um, 
being harmed by the fact that there's a massive amount of turnover for the assistant coach position because nobody can live on what the sport pays, right? Um, so that would be awesome to see changed, right? Because to be effective leaders and coaches, we have to have an ability to build relationships and trust. And how are you supposed to do that when you're there for 10 months and then you have to leave, right? So constant turnover to me erodes those things and negatively impacts player experience. It also keeps a lot of people out of the coaching profession. There's any number of public debates about, you know, who, who about how do we create opportunities for any number of identified groups um, so that they have greater representation in the sport. Um, put aside for the moment whether that's a legitimate goal or not, you can quibble about that, but assuming it is, you can't get these people in, not because of overt discrimination, like a lot of people claim. It's because the people can't afford to go in there. They can't afford it. Okay. So I think I think if we could increase salaries and pay, you could get um, more professional people in there and allow them to learn the job rather than leave so soon. Um, I think basic things in the category of professionalism is um, let's, again, let's be fair to the athletes. Let's be fair to the athletes and, and, and update information at, at many programs. It's incredibly hard to learn information about the programs. The websites are, um, not updated, inaccurate, don't have rosters that are complete. Um, don't have players, players are on the team. They're not even listed on the roster, um, uh, historical data, performance records over time, missing all over the place. So, you know, that smacks of a secondary sport. And it's, in my judgment, disrespectful to the players who have chosen to do it. Um, so when I say professionals, and that's what I mean, I don't mean people are acting unprofessionally. I mean, let's, let's do things right in sport. You know, imagine the number of Division One football programs whose website don't have last year's record on it or, or don't have an, an accurate roster. Well, if you go to beach, it's a coin toss. It may or may not be right. Um, you know, I, I would love to see the sport and those in control of it take a greater um, view toward improving those things because to, um, those small things, I think, matter. Um, and they are um, collectively a bunch of oversights that, if improved, would add something to the sport, would add more and more respect to the sport. And a lot of people think of beach as like a pastime, like, oh, it's a college sport, right? Because people think it's a joke. A lot of people just think college beach volleyball, like beach volleyball is a joke. They think it's a, you know, drink beer, have burgers, and you're like, oh, that's a college sport. Oh, you're getting a scholarship. You don't understand the level of commitment that the coaches and the athletes are putting into it. Um, so I think I think cleaning up a lot of that stuff, I think, would promote the sport and put it in a much better light for the public. Uh, that it's not just a fun pastime, that there are incredibly talented, devoted people committing a good segment of their life to it. So maybe we should be accurate with basic things like that. Yeah, and for the reference of kind of what Wade's talking about, it's, it's sometimes can be easy to see a college sport and think, oh, of course, they just want more money, right? There's there's money flushing it. I mean, there are numerous programs in the country at the Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, NAI level that don't have an athletic trainer that travels with the program. You're traveling seven weekends a year. You're playing 32 matches in those seven to eight weekends. Um, people are going to get hurt. I don't know. It's just how it works, right? That's that's the nature of pushing your body to physical limits. Um, and to not have somebody, to not have a professional on site or 
in your team's corner to help evaluate and get athletes properly treated is a problem. Um, when, when, when you kind of touched on it shortly, but like, like assistants wanting to have shelter and food, right? We're, we're not arguing over $150,000. We're arguing over $5,000, $10,000 that, that made the difference between, hey, our assistant coach is going to run practice and then go wait tables at the local Applebee's versus our assistant coach is going to spend eight hours a day working for our program, helping us out and making, being there for our student athletes when they need them um, on and off the court because it, I mean, you get phone calls any given time of day, right? You get, there are things that a coach is always on duty for. And if they have to be on duty for that and a second job just to make ends meet, not to buy a house, not to afford a big vacation to a foreign country, but to make sure that there are two meal, two, three square meals a day and a roof over their head with roommates, keep in mind, right? And that's, that's where the the inequity is or the the issue i would say in the professionalism why would i take my coach seriously if he's also slinging milkshakes over at mcdonald's on the weekends you know what am i going to go to the school with the guy that's with the burger king delivery drive-through guy slash beach coach yeah that that's a drop the mic moment i'm not going to add anything else to that i think you guys are speaking words that a lot of people will resonate with um and i I think that's a perfect way to kind of just kind of send this into the the next kind of stratosphere for beach volleyball knowing the history of the game knowing how it's grown over the years how that growth might not be as fast as we think it is um or that everyone says it is but it's still continuing to grow and there are areas that are very achievable to continue to grow in. Um, but Colin, uh, what do you got coming up next on your schedule? Yeah, this will come out in a week. So I think, uh, I think I'll have gotten back from Sandstorm, hanging out with Wayne, uh, for a little bit down there in South Florida, um, be prepping for Kansas city, uh, P413 clinic and showcase there. And then headed straight from there to AAU Nationals for indoor volleyball um, in Orlando before taking off for Chicago for USA Nationals and Hermosa Beach coming home for the uh, AVP Junior Nationals. What about you, Wayne? What do you got coming up? Uh, yeah, I look forward to that. Hermosa Beach, it's going to be fun. Um, Let's see. I'm going to take a little bit of time off the next few days, I think, and then we'll be in uh, be down in South Florida in uh, Pompano Beach at the end of the month for a tournament, and then a quick turnaround out to South Bay for the month, and come back. And there's some other great events down here in South Florida at the in late July, and um, yeah, that's what that's the next three or four weeks for me. We'll, We'll see what uh, we'll see what we'll see what happens after that. Yeah. Michael, any place the three of us are going to run into you? Where what's what's happening in your world? Um, I'm sticking by the home base. We're we're running our camps. Um, I got three more dates for my camps: July 14th, 15th, July 28th, 29th, and then August 12th and 13th. But we will have representation 
out at Hermosa Beach. Our, our graduate assistant, Lauren Erickson, will be out there to kind of walk around and uh, observe the the scene out there. Um, but for that, I meant for juniors coming into the summer months, almost the end of the summer um, at this point, uh, juniors, you can go to avpamerica.com and there's a bunch of tournaments and events um, there that you guys can go see. Um, there's always beach volleyball camps and clinics. I know there there's a newer Instagram site um, that is putting out a lot of beach volleyball camps on their site to kind of promote everyone else. Um, so I think it is also called Beach Volleyball Colleges um, on Instagram that will show you a bunch of camps and clinics that you can go see other than tournaments and events. Yeah, I know Beach Prospects does a good job of re reposting uh, college camps as well. So you can always keep your eye out. There's not always a direct website, but uh, sometimes it's it's easy as scrolling through social media um, or even sending an email and asking for camp information. Right, That's something that college coaches can send back. Mm -hmm. um, on the pro side, right, there's a big Elite 16 Stad. If you get the chance to watch over the 4th of July, it's like the most beautiful thing to see on TV. Um, and then in addition to that, AVP Hermosa Open for juniors that – I think Wayne and I are going to be hanging out at, and then Lauren also. Um, there's the AVP Pro Tour that I'll play that weekend in Hermosa as well. Always a, a fine favorite. Um, up until COVID, it was the I think the longest running AVP tournament. It was the only one that had happened every year from like 1998 until 2020. Um, so it should be a fun one. But yeah, yeah, I meant I can't thank Wayne enough for being with us. Um, check out his website, Beach, Beach Prospects. Um, is it dot com? Dot com. Beachprospects.com. Go check that out. He has a lot of information there. His research is there. Plus, you can get in contact with him if you have questions about being able to work with him more closely in, in the recruiting process or in the education process. Um, but thank you so much, Wayne, for joining us again. Thanks, um, Mike, Colin. Fantastic discussion as usual. Love hanging out with you guys. Uh, appreciate the invite and um, uh, hope to do it again. I'll, I'll see you guys soon. All right. We'll see you soon. Man.